Hi everyone, Steve here. Before we get going this week, I just want to extend a massive thank you for all of the support and love this podcast has been receiving. The response has been overwhelming. I did not expect that I would have that many listeners, but to see that people are enjoying this podcast as much as I am writing it is amazing. Starting a podcast, you think it could be potentially a hostile environment because people may think that you're, shall we say, trying to invade their space. I could not tell you how wrong I was. The love and encouragement from everyone is so amazing, so I thought I would start telling you about some of the shows that I have found, as everyone is working as hard as I am, and if they are anything like me, having to make sacrifices in their social life to do something that they are passionate about and sharing it with everyone listening. So I haven't told these people that I'll be doing this today, so I hope that they don't mind, and I really want to say this is definitely not a paid ad. I am doing this because I believe in these shows 100% and they deserve 100% maximum exposure. Firstly, there is the One Eye Open podcast. Steffi does a phenomenal job telling her stories, with a voice so calming and relaxing it takes the edge off of the atrocities that she is describing. 100% truth. I was listening to an episode as I was travelling home the other night and I had to pull over on the M40 as one of her stories about Derek Bentley really got me emotionally. She deserves all of the plaudits for an absolutely amazing show, and I love it. Secondly, give the girls over at Our True Crime Podcast a listen. If you are British and have watched the old Great British Bake Off, Cam and Jen remind me of an American Melon Sue with their friendship and how they feed off of each other whilst discussing some very difficult subjects. Most of all, they sound like they are really having fun as well, which is what it's all about, so please give them a go as well. Please come over and join me on my Facebook page. I would love to talk to as many of you as possible, and I want to make it our own little community. Hopefully, all of you will be pleased to know that all of the supportive messages I have been receiving, as well as all of the recommendations I have been seeing on Facebook and Twitter, it has really made me hungry to continue beyond the 12 episodes I had planned, and I am not going anywhere. Thank you, Michael Moore, from the Inner City Like Yours podcast, for all of your kind words and support. Although I am predominantly a one-man band, I'm really grateful to a few people who have been really helping me along the way. Thank you to my wife Ashley for creating the logo for me, building me this amazing studio that I'm now recording from, and for bringing me back down to earth when I venture to thoughts far beyond my capabilities. A thank you to Rick Whitbread for the idea of doing the trailers and showing me how to do them, plus also the support network that I have around me You guys know who you are, and I apologise for all the rants that I have been giving over the last few weeks. But mainly, my thanks to Alex Irvin, who did all of the editing and production for me for my first few episodes. He has taught me about levels and things, and I gave a link to his Fiverr account on Twitter. If you want to contact him, either about voiceover work or editing a podcast, then he's an absolutely fantastic guy, and no doubt he will help you. So that's the business out of the way, and now on to this week's episode. 
True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the True Crime Fix podcast with Stevie B. It's hard to fathom the pain of having somebody just disappear from your life. It's also hard to imagine how one person's actions and continuous torture can haunt the lives of survivors for years to come. This is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of Colette Aaron. Colette Aaron was born on the 3rd of February 1967 to Mother Jackie and Father Tony, and she also had a brother Mark who was two years older than her. She was raised in Keyworth. Keyworth is a village in the county of Nottinghamshire in the English Midlands. Keyworth is located about six miles southeast of Nottingham city centre and has a population of just under 7,000 people. The Arams did everything together, with Mark being protective of Colette and Colette adoring her brother. They of course would bicker like any siblings, but they were inseparable. As the children got older, Jackie decided to take some part-time work in a local hair salon in order to make sure that the family was not surviving on just Tony's wage. She did, however, make sure that she was home by the time the children returned from school. Mark and Colette, who was aged eight at the time, managed to convince their parents to let them take horse riding lessons. They became experts at riding, but the passion was lost when the stables wanted to enter them in Gymkhana's which is an equestrian day event, particularly for children. The more the children were pushed, however, the less interest Mark showed because he just enjoyed the thrill of riding the horses at his own leisure. Colette decided that she would give it another go the following week, but without the support and competitiveness that she shared with her brother, she too lost the love and never returned. At the age of 10, Colette took up dancing, excelling at ballroom, ballet and tap. She started entering competitions and in outfits made for her by her grandmother, Colette won several competitions and diplomas with the trophies and rosettes starting to decorate the house. Colette also had a passion for baking. Once again it was something that she'd started with her brother but as his interest dwindled, she kept with it. She enjoyed experimenting with flavours and herbs and it made her happy to see people enjoying what she had made. Colette's first choice of a career was as a nurse. At the age of 15, she was assigned to Saxondale Hospital, just outside Nottingham, for work experience. However, she returned from her first day a little downtrodden, as she had been told that she could not study to become a nurse until she was 18. She was heartbroken as three more years seemed like a lifetime to the ambitious teenager. After considering her options with her mother, she set her sights on becoming a hairdresser. 
In September 1982, Jackie, Tony, Colette and her school friend Amanda went for a two-week holiday in the south of France in a resort a few miles from Montpellier. During the day, the adults would laze on the beach whilst Colette and Amanda would go off and explore. They had the time of their lives. Colette was enjoying life at the age of 16, having recently left school and started an apprenticeship as a hairdresser at a hairdresser's owned by her mum's Aunt May and her partner Kevin in Keyworth. The owners were very impressed with their prodigy as she had been described as having an arty side while still understanding the beauty aspects. The shop was bought by May and Kevin when her initial apprenticeship had fallen through at Salvatore. The owner had expressed to Colette a few months prior his desire to sell the shop. So Colette's aunt had bought it from him with the intention of Colette running the shop when she was fully trained. Colette had been seeing her boyfriend, Russell Godfrey, for eight months and he was one year older than her. He was described by Colette's mum as a kind, gentle boy, the type that any mother would want for their daughter. On October the 30th, 1983, Colette, wearing a pair of black corduroy trousers, white silk blouse and red crop jacket, left her parents' home on Normanton Lane in her hometown of Keyworth just before 10 to 8 to go to her boyfriend Russell Godfrey's house in Willowbrook, roughly a mile away. Russell had been due to pick her up in his silver Vauxhall, but on that particular night, his car was off the road. Colette's mum Jackie offered her a lift, but Colette rejected it, saying that it was a nice night and she wanted to walk. Shortly after Colette had left, Russell called her house and was told by Jackie that she'd just departed. He said that he would take his bike and meet her en route. Just after 8pm, Colette turned into Nicker Hill, where she stopped to chat with a group of her friends who she happened to bump into. Upon leaving her friends, Colette continued her journey on Nicker Hill towards her boyfriend's house. She never arrived. At approximately ten past eight, Russell called back and the call was answered by her mum Jackie. Russell informed Jackie that he had gone on the route that he anticipated Colette would have walked and he had expected to have seen her but there was no sign of her. Russell said that he had also had a look round the village, but was unable to track her down. Bearing in mind the short distance between the two houses, the length of time that had elapsed since she had left, and the report that Colette was nowhere to be seen, Jackie became understandably panicked. Jackie called the United Kingdom emergency number 999 on the hunch that something was wrong. Police informed her that as it had only been a short period of time since she'd left, she was not to worry. They asked Jackie whether Colette had arranged a home time. Jackie said they'd agreed on half past nine. The police operator said that if there was no sign of her by half past ten, then call back. Upon getting off the phone with the police, Jackie frantically called all of her neighbours and various people throughout the village to inquire if they'd seen Colette. With all of these calls being in vain, Colette's dad Tony took the car and drove around the local area. The police were called again at approximately half past ten and they attended the property of Jackie and Tony. They took a description of Colette as well as her last known whereabouts. 
detectives then started their own inquiries locally. Jackie took some of the officers on a walk, retracing the steps that Colette would have taken, looking for any signs of accidents. The assumption at the time was that she may have been injured by a car and was unable to call for help. On the route that they took, there was no clear evidence of an accident or the sounds of an injured person crying for help. In the early hours of the following morning, the police put a halt on the search for the night. When she returned home, Jackie called all of the local medical facilities to see if her daughter had been reported as injured or whether she had been admitted to any of the hospitals. These calls were also unsuccessful. At 8am the following morning, a local businessman was on his way to work. His route took him up Thurlby Lane, a mile and a half from the Aram family home. He spotted something that he thought was abnormal in a field, but at first glance he could not tell what it was. The man stopped the car, turned around and headed back to where he saw the object in the field. Less than an hour later, one of those who had been out all night, Colette's 18-year-old brother Mark, was in a car with his granddad, still searching. As they turned into Thurlby Lane, they saw the striped blue tape of a police cordon at the side of a field which was just being erected. A sudden feeling of dread came over him. He parked his car up and ran towards the field. He barged past officers and despite their best efforts to stop him, Mark ended up looking at a sight which would go on to haunt him from that day forward. Laying there in the field was his younger sister Colette. Colette had been stripped naked and she had been positioned in a sexually explicit pose with her wrists tied behind her by her blouse and her bra. She had suffered a nasty head wound. A short time later, the police followed the two relatives home and the news was broken to Jackie and Tony. Jackie recalled a few years later in an interview, a scream came from deep within and didn't stop. I stopped eating and it was only when the GP gave me tranquilizers, the pain numbed. Tony and my father had to identify Colette. My father died six months later. I'm sure that's what killed him. The news of Colette's death also spread terror across the otherwise sleepy village of Keyworth. Many daughters were kept under house arrest by wary parents with the fear that this unknown killer would strike again. The ensuing post-mortem revealed that Colette had been sexually assaulted and subsequently strangled by her attacker. The investigation was led by Detective Superintendent Bob Davey and they set up a command centre at a local sports complex. The first piece of evidence that was found was a red Ford Fiesta which had been reported stolen by a lady in a neighbouring village. The Fiesta was sent for testing in the lab to see if there was any forensic evidence. Two crucial bits of information were received from witnesses. The first was from a man on Nicker Hill. The man was out in his garden when he heard from the main road the sound of a woman screaming as if she needed help. The witness was able to pinpoint the time as 14 minutes past 8 due to a clock in the house. By the time the sound had registered with him and he was able to get to his back gate to investigate, there was a sound of an engine being furiously over-revved and the screeching tyres as the car pulled away, so he was unable to see the source. 
The second piece of information came on the 1st of November from a pub landlady at the Generous Britain pub in the neighbouring village of Kostok, four and a half miles away. Just after 9pm on the night of the 30th of October, a man whom she did not recognise came in and ordered a pint of orange juice and lemonade and a sandwich. The man was acting suspiciously as his story kept changing when a conversation was started with him. The man claimed he was visiting a friend who lived in Barton in Fabius and worked at the radcliffe on Saw power station. It was then she noticed that he had blood on his hands. She politely removed herself from his presence and the man became more nervous, suspecting that she had noticed this. He asked where the bathroom was. Shortly after he returned from the bathroom, he finished his drink and left. Realising that this could be a vital piece of evidence, a forensic team was dispatched by the superintendent and scoured the pub for evidence that they could collect. Upon the return of the results from the laboratory, it was discovered that some of the tissues recovered had human blood and semen on. Due to the fact that forensic science was a new science, this biological evidence could only be used to compare with a known sample instead of being used to identify a killer as it can today. Two weeks after the death of Colette, the police received a macabre letter, which was allegedly from the killer. The letter itself was strange, as it appeared as though the author had used a ruler to shape the letters and therefore hide in their own handwriting. The other peculiar thing about the letter was that the author had replaced all of the letter S's with exclamation marks. The poorly written letter said, As you will never find me. I was in a hut for hours waiting for a girl to return from horse riding. No one saw me. When the car came with the keys, I could not help take it. Masks are common around Halloween. No one knows what I look like. That is why you have not got me. I go soon, and then you will never get me. I know I strangled her when her car passed. She would have got me caught, but she was not dead when I left her. Maybe the cold killed her. Cars passed when we were there. I thought she'd be all right. I drove around and ended up at Keyworth. I don't know it, so I drove around to find out about the place. I left the car there to fool you and walk back across the field. To show it was me. Did she wear a blouse? Due to the bizarre nature of the letter, it was questioned whether it was a hoax or genuine. However, the letter contained details about the crime which had not been made public. Ironically, the police found a partial fingerprint above the words, You'll never get me. The initial investigation of the fingerprint led to no identifiable match as the print did not have enough significant markers for a conclusive answer and at the time, most of the checks were done by hand. By the middle of 1984, the police had interviewed 20,000 people taking 2,200 statements and over 5,300 inquiries had been followed up. By June 1984, the BBC were getting ready to launch a new programme by the name of Crime Watch UK. Nick Ross and Sue Cook presented the first show 
and ultimately would present the first 11 years of the show. The series would show reconstructions of evidence which were already held by the police with the hope that this information would jog the memory of the public who may have seen crucial things on the days of the crime, providing the police with valuable missing pieces of information that would crack the case. Colette Aram's case was the first to be shown on the premiere episode on the 7th of June 1984. The following details of the crime were revealed on the show, outlining what the police knew from the weird letter that they had received and the information that they had collated over seven months of general inquiries. On Sunday the 30th of October 1983, the killer stole a red Ford Fiesta from a riding stables in Mudpie Lane near Holm Pierpoint, a hamlet six miles north of Keyworth. The keys had been left in the car whilst the owner tended to her horse. It was revealed that the man had been there for some time watching the young girls ride horses. Upon receiving the letter, the police investigated a hut on the field where the activities were taking place. They found a cloth which had traces of male semen on it. It was obvious that the killer had not had the opportunity to get any of the girls alone and he had to change his plans and took the car. The stolen fiesta was seen again on Mount Pleasant an estate in Keyworth at 5pm where the killer got out of the car and entered a house. Between 6.20 and 7.20pm, the Fiesta was seen cruising round Keyworth trying to pick up young girls. One girl in particular, who was walking her dog, had an extremely close encounter. She recalled a man who she described as being between 25 and 35 years old with brown wavy hair stopping to talk to her. He stopped her and asked her for directions to a road that he had literally just passed. He then inquired where she was going and asked if she wanted a lift. When she declined, the driver's demeanour became persistent and aggressive before giving up and driving off. The next report of the man and the fiesta was at 8pm when the man was spotted returning to the vehicle with a knife. The location of this sighting was on Colette's boyfriend's road. Then they disclosed the information about the woman's scream and the information about the man in the generous Britain pub. Collating the descriptions which they had got from witnesses, the police managed to compile a photo fit of the man. The show led to over 400 calls from the public, but alas, none of the new information received led to new clues or new suspects. Over the coming months, the case went cold, with new cases coming into Nottinghamshire Police Force all the time. Eventually, over the coming years, the information was sparse. So what effect did all this trauma have on Colette's family? Colette's father is a quiet and intensely private man who finds it hard to talk about the terrible events which changed his life and the lives of those he loved forever. He spoke painfully of the day of the murder in an article which was released by Nottinghamshire Police. As soon as we realised that Colette hadn't arrived at her boyfriend's, we went straight up there and started looking from there. We were out most of the night looking. We drove all over the village and the outskirts and Jackie was ringing around friends. I was in the work van. Tony Aram says that he drove down the lane where Colette's body was found but saw nothing. A joiner by trade, Tony used to enjoy his Sunday ritual of breakfast followed by cricket. He played for Castle Cricket Club 
and worked in Plumtree. His was a normal family life. But Colette's murder left a hole that nothing will ever fill. I think about her every day. You never forget. It's always there. Jackie spoke to the Daily Mirror in the UK. I thought I was going mad. I was getting prank calls. I was pretty sure I was being watched. I thought the killer lived close by. Tony and I began to operate within our own little worlds. When Mark moved out at 21, Tony and I realised we'd slowly destroyed the love we'd once had for each other. With no one else to blame, we directed our anger at each other. Tony and Jackie Aram got divorced in 1986 and Jackie moved to Arnold, a village 13 miles away and just north of Nottingham city centre. Jackie recalled, I became obsessed with the killer, scanning crowds of people to see if I could see anybody who matched the photo fit. In 1988, Jackie was offered a job as a holiday rep in Greece and she left Nottinghamshire behind to try and kickstart her life. Jackie said, Although Colette was always in my thoughts, I could make a fresh start. Jackie did not share any of the information about the trauma that she had gone through back at home with her new friends or colleagues in Greece, and she felt as though her life was getting back on track. In 1995, Jackie began a relationship with fellow expat Peter Kirby, who owned a charter yacht company on the island of Zakynthos, just off of the Greek mainland. Six months into their relationship, Jackie shared the whole ordeal with her new partner, who just sat there in stunned silence listening to her. Jackie recalled that that was all she had needed, someone to listen to her. On the 27th of December 1996, the couple married at Sakintos Town Hall. In 1997, some advances in forensic science had been made and Dr Tim Clayton was given some physical evidence in an attempt to get the DNA profile of the killer. Dr Clayton managed to get a full DNA profile of Colette from the evidence which had been stored. He then tried to get the killer's DNA profile from the semen which was collected from Colette Aram's body. Unfortunately, his first attempt only managed to get three markers of the 20 required to get a full DNA profile. As a result, the investigation was put on hold again. As time ticked into the new millennium, Colette's case was only sporadically looked at by the police and her killer was still out there. The police still had the evidence that had been collected from the crime scene, the generous Britain pub, the photo fit and the evidence from the hut at Holm Pierpoint. In 2004, the case was allocated to the cold case team and was reopened under the supervision of Detective Superintendent Kevin Flint who was a rookie detective on the initial investigation. Over the years, there were significant advances in the mapping of DNA profiles and therefore the team sent the physical evidence over to the crime lab to Dr Clayton again in 2007. Pessimistic about his chances following his failure the first time, Dr Clayton was able to identify two contributors on a paper towel left at the generous Britain pub. One contributor was male, and one contributor was female. Dr Clayton then considered reviewing the female DNA against Colette, whom he'd retrieved ten years earlier. 
it was a match. Excitement grew as why else would Colette's DNA be in a pub miles away from where she lived unless this tissue had been used by her killer. When he excluded the female markers this time, he was able to put together a DNA profile of the killer, something which they would never had before. Buoyed by this new lead in the investigation, they ran the profile against the database of held DNA samples. The whole process took about 18 months. Alas though, there was no match. During the 10 years since the partial profile, police ruled out 1,500 possible suspects. In October 2008, Jackie was asked to appear on Crime Watch UK to mark the 25th anniversary of Colette's death. On the 30th of October 2008, to mark the anniversary, the police released a flyer which updated the local community of developments. The police distributed 15,000 newspaper-type pamphlets advertising a £10,000 reward for anybody who gave information which led to conviction. On the Crime Watch episode, Detective Superintendent Flint warned viewers that developments in DNA testing meant that the police now had a full profile of the killer. Little did the police know that at that point, their big break in the case had happened four months earlier. In June 2008, a 20-year-old man by the name of Jean-Paul Hutchinson was stopped by the police and ultimately arrested for motoring offences. As is routine for anybody who is arrested, a DNA swab was taken from him and sent off to the lab for uploading to the database. In early 2009, just as the investigators were getting ready to close the case down again due to no new evidence, his DNA was flagged up as a near-identical match of the Colette Aram cold case killer. The issue was that the 21-year-old man had not been born when the crime was committed. This was the breakthrough that was needed by the police. The DNA was a familial match, but the issue for the police now was that it could have been one of four brothers. Police learned quickly that one of the brothers could not be investigated as he passed away a few years earlier. So it was decided on Monday the 7th of April 2009 that the police were going to raid the addresses of the remaining brothers and arrest all three on suspicion of murder in order to get a DNA swab and finally catch the killer. Two of the brothers cooperated fully with the police but one remained answering his questions with no comment. After some investigation, Paul Stewart Hutchinson was arrested in April 2009. At the time of his arrest, Hutchinson was a self-employed newspaper delivery agent in Gamston, six miles from the scene. When Hutchinson was arrested, he tried to pin the crime on his brother Gerhard, who'd passed away. Police compared Hutchinson's DNA and it was a match. Eventually, Hutchinson confessed to fellow prison inmates when he was awaiting trial. At the time of Colette's murder, his parents' family home was in Seymour Road, West Bridgeford, around 500 yards across open fields from where he stole the car that he used to abduct Colette. However, shortly before the crime, his new wife and he had moved to the village of Keyworth. Hutchinson was known to be an habitual liar. At the time of the killing, he had told his family that he was having his lung removed due to cancer. He even shaved his head to keep up the ruse. 
it is now clear that he had done this to change his appearance due to the atrocities that he had committed. Hutchinson, then 25, had spent hours in a shed near to the riding school on the day of Colette's murder, watching for girls returning home alone. When he failed to find a target, he stole a car and spent hours touring around looking for victims. Hutchinson was a fantasist and spied on at least four other girls on the day that he killed Colette. Hutchinson was armed with a bread knife when he approached a 17-year-old girl and another schoolgirl before abducting Colette. Shortly after 8pm, he'd forced Colette into the car in Nicker Hill before driving to the field where he raped and strangled her. Hutchinson abducted, raped and murdered Colette in just 10 minutes. He then drove to the pub to have a drink and get something to eat whilst he cleaned himself up. He lived seven streets away at the time of the murder and used to return to the village to spy on the investigation. Hutchinson entered a plea of not guilty on the 5th of October 2009 but changed his plea to guilty at the pre-trial hearing on the 21st of December 2009 at Nottingham Crown Court. On the 25th of January 2010, Hutchinson was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years in Nottingham Prison. On the 11th of October 2010, Hutchinson was found unconscious in his cell at Nottingham Prison. He died in an ambulance on the way to the hospital. Despite inconclusive post-mortem results, it is believed that he committed suicide by overdosing on his medications. Hutchinson, who was 51 when he was jailed, was in poor health and suffered from diabetes, the effect of which had left him partially sighted. The final word in this episode comes from Colette's mother, Jackie. I went back to Greece and Kevin called. Hutchinson had been found dead in his cell of an overdose. He'd done just a few months in jail. I was furious as I felt cheated. Now I don't care how he died, I'm just glad that he can't ever do this to anyone else's daughter. Colette is always with me, but now I'm finally at peace. So that's it for this week. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. Or look out for our Facebook page, TrueCrimeFixPodcast. That's True Crime Fix Podcast. I'll be posting information about the week's case on there. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me on True Crime Fix Podcast. That's all one word. True Crime Fix Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everybody.